coming up. It's time for a special Diz Musical episode. <laughs> From points across California, you're listening to the Disneyland edition of the Diz Unplugged. This is the Diz Unplugged Disneyland edition, episode 570, for the week of April 24th, 2016. The Diz Unplugged Disneyland edition is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, helping you plan the perfect Disneyland vacation. Visit them on the web at www.dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the show. I am your host, Tom Bell, and I'm joined by my good friend, Michael Bowling. Hey there, hi there, ho there. And our special guest, Chris Linden. Hi, it's a pleasure to be with you. So, Michael, it's all about the music this time? It is. It, it, I mean, you know, all of us grew up with the music of all Disney films, television shows, and theme parks. And many of us associate fond memories and significant moments in our lives with a Disney tuner song. So for generations of children and adults, Disney music has provided the soundtrack of our lives. So my guest on this episode of the Dis Unplugged podcast, Disneyland Edition, is Chris Linden. Uh, many of you may better know him as Disney Chris. And collecting Disney audio has been a lifetime hobby of Chris's. I first learned about Chris Linden through his vast collection of Disney audio he shares at DisneyChris.com. And we'll have a link to that in our show notes. Chris is also a contributor to the Mouse Music Podcast and hosts the Jiminy Crickets Podcast. Chris, welcome to the Dis Unplugged Podcast Disneyland Edition. Hello, I'm ready to talk music. Excellent. And we all have our dancing shoes on. We're just, <laughs> we're just ready to go. So, so Chris, this is, this is really a specialized area of Disney fandom. Um, I, I've really not met anyone who has, is such an expert as you. Um, what sparked your interest in Disney music? Well, I think that, um, you know, growing up in the seventies, um, we didn't have VHS. The only way we could get our Disney fix was to listen to record albums. Um, so I started collecting Disney records and listening to the stories and it sparked my imagination, you know, listening to those old storyteller albums and listening to the Disney music on those albums. And as I got a little bit older, I started making my own little mixtapes with my father's stereo system. Didn't we all? Yes, definitely. <laughs> yeah. So I would, you know, do my little compilations of Disney music. And one area that really frustrated me that I just couldn't get the music for was the parks, because there was not a lot of park music available at that time. So over the years, as more and more park music has become available, especially with the Internet, um, you know, it's my hobby has grown and blossomed and become, you know, something even greater than it was when I was five years old. Um, but I've been collecting music since then. So I have a lot of rare and, and, um, you know, music you probably never heard of. And I've been seeing Disney music and reading about it and just, it's become a lifelong passion. That's wonderful. I yeah, I collect Disney music too from since I also like you since I was a boy. Of course, I was a boy a little earlier than you, but um, so I still have a lot of my thirty three and the thirds, which a lot of our younger listeners are going to really wonder what am I talking about. It's not my waist size, and also um, <laughs> some of my forty fives and things like that. And I and I had the little reading, you know, like you talked about the the read along. Tinker Bell rings but, her little bell. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And what's funny is that they've been sitting actually in my wife's closet when she's been very anxious to get rid of them. But at the last <laughs> record store day, you know, because we don't have a turntable anymore. Yeah, you life, add to it. Yeah. And my, well, at last record store day, I actually got the Mickey Mouse turntable that Crosley was selling and on that day. And so now I have something to play all of my old vintage Disney albums on. And so Carol said, that means they're leaving my closet <laughs> and coming up to my study where I've, I'm setting up my little turntable. Well, we're going to get into our Dis Unplugged Carousel of Progress time travel machine and go way back to 1927 because 
really the advent of the tradition of Disney music began then. Walt saw The Jazz Singer, which was the first film with synchronized sound. Mm-hmm. And he thought, you know, Walt was always the innovator. So he thought, hey, he wanted to make a cartoon with sound. And of course, that was what we now know as um, Steamboat Willie. That was right. released in 1928. And yep. that that changed really the animation industry, didn't it, Chris? Absolutely. I mean, can you imagine having just a year earlier seen the first for the first time seen on the screen somebody moving their mouth and words coming out of it? I mean, how amazing that must have been to the movie movie going audience who up until that point had only, you know, seen silence Mm -hmm. on the screen. But then music accompanied by like uh, an organ or piano or something. Right, right. Live music in the theater. Mm -hmm. But to take that 10 steps further and have animated drawings have sound seemingly to come out of them must have been absolutely jaw-dropping to the movie-going public of 1928. People had never seen anything like this before. And if you can acquaint it to maybe the first time um, in our generation we ever saw computer animation Mm -hmm. and how amazing and jaw-dropping and incredible that looked to us because we had never seen anything like it, that must have been how 1928 audiences felt when they saw the first synchronized sound cartoon. Oh, so when you when you watch that cartoon today, you look at it and you're like, oh, it's cute, whatever, whatever. But you really have to put yourself in the mindset of the 1928 audience who are watching this on a whole different level. The sound was what made that cartoon amazing. Not so much the animation, because it's very simple animation. It was all about the sound coming out of Mickey Mouse's, you know, pie hole <laughs> that yeah. made it that made it something extraordinary to audiences. And it made Walt Disney and Mickey Mouse an overnight sensation. And from that point on, music and Disney became synonymous. Right. And the interesting thing is, as other studios rushed to make their talkies and they used the music as background. But what Walt what was different about Walt is the music was used to tell the story and propel it. And that right. had never been done. And and perfect examples are the Silly Symphonies. Exactly. That, In fact, you can look to the Silly Symphonies and and cite them as being the very first music videos of all time. Because nothing like this had ever existed before. The skeleton dance um, predates Video Killed the Radio Star by 60 years, but it was the very first music video predating MTV by decades. <laughs> and also, uh, Walt used the Silly Symphonies to, it was the testing ground for his animators. Right. Uh, for them to refine their skills and increase their, their animation and drawing and artists, artists right. skills. And of course, exactly. that led to, Another innovation, you know, Walt always wanted to do Snow White. Uh, you know, he saw it as a very little boy, a one hour silent version of it. So he started to think about doing a, a, a silly symphony of it, but that of course grew into, mm-hmm. to, to where in 1937 he released the first full length animated feature of right. Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Again, a, a film where the music told the story. It wasn't just where you know, where musicals where they just, you know, the characters would suddenly stop and, and just stop the out plot the and break out into a song that had nothing to do to forward the plot. Exactly. Walt Disney revolutionary, you know, revolutionized that by having the songs complement the plot and move the story forward. His studio pretty much created that that concept. Mm-hmm. That was something completely groundbreaking. Another groundbreaking thing about Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs was that it was the very first original soundtrack ever released on vinyl. Um, before that, um, when they had a musical film, they would re-record the soundtrack um, 
after the film had been released with different, sometimes with the same artists, sometimes with different artists, with different orchestrations, not exactly what was in the film. Mm-hmm. Snow White was the very first time they took the soundtrack directly from the film soundtrack and released it on album. And and also just in marketing in general, that was the first film where marketing was in place. Right, they, yes, they had mass marketing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Another groundbreaking one. My favorite of the classic films is Pinocchio, which was Me as well. 1940. It's yes. coming up on its 75th anniversary. Wow. This was groundbreaking because it won the Academy Award for Best Score in 1940. Yes. So sudden now there's legitimacy. To... Right. And, and also Best Original Song. Mm-hmm. And, and we all know which one it was. <laughs> Because it's, right. it's little, become... little wood, little wooden head, right? Oh, yes, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> but but it's become the anthem of right. the when Walt you wish Disney upon company. a star. Yes, exactly. Of course, best original song, sung and... by the one, the only Cliff Edwards, who uh-huh. was also the voice of Jiminy Crickets. A little um, trivia: Cliff Edwards was originally known as Ukulele Ike. Mm-hmm. And he was a um, perf- he was a performer during the Roaring Twenties, and he sang a lot of old uh, standards. And one of his most famous uh, songs was "Singing in the Rain." He kind of yes. popular he popularized that song. Popular pop. <laughs> Say that ten times fast. <laughs> and and then again, Walt, ever the innovator, really really tested everyone when he came out with his concert film and of course that's fantasia in 1940 and this was revolutionary in how we heard film music right this was the first time that a multi-channel recording had been um produced for the for a sound for film soundtrack or for any medium whatsoever um they had basically what is known today as surround sound but uh the disney engineers invented this in the 1940s the early 1940s and it was such a new innovation they had to come up with a new word for it and they called it fantasound and the sound just sounded it, it was speakers located all around the theater just like modern day surround sound so you felt like you were surrounded by the the orchestra and the the sound effects and everything was around you to create the sensation that you were watching a live concert and not a film. Right. And unfortunately, Walt really didn't have the resources to set this up in as many theaters as he wanted. And then the war intruded. Right. And another thing that's interesting about Fantasia that a lot of people don't think about but this had a lot to do with Walt wanting to create a permanent venue that he could alter and change because the original concept for Fantasia was that over it would be an ongoing presentation that he would cut scenes out and add new scenes in over time and it would last for years and years and years and it would just be an ongoing production and this was kind of a concept that he would later take with him when he created Disneyland because he wanted a medium that he could constantly refine and tweak and make better and make improvements on so Fantasia kind of was leading like one of the early sparks of what would lead to his Disneyland concept Right. Yeah. And, and of course, finally his dream was realized in 2000 when Roy E. Disney Walt's nephew released Fantasia 2000 that contained new segments as right. well as some of our favorite segments right. in there. Right. The Sorcerer's Apprentice, most notably, was in there. And Sorcerer Mickey's my favorite character. So, yes. you know, I, and, and again, that, that theme, you know, the, the music yeah. for that is now, you know, even if people don't know, what it is, who wrote it, they certainly right. know where it's from and who, n- right. and now who's associated with it. Yeah. I mean, it was written years, you know, it's, it's, oh, it was yeah. written years and years before Fantasia, but now it's become synonymous with Fantasia. Right. And, and with Mickey Mouse. And with Mickey Mouse. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And it's the like Disney the, company in, mm-hmm. in general. Mm-hmm. It's like the William Tell overture. You know, people of a certain generation just think of the Lone Ranger. 
Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. But, but, and then, you know, the war hit, uh, the studio's finances, uh, were severely limited because, uh, the overseas, uh, revenue from releasing films was not there. And that was a big bulk of their profits. Right. So what, but what we, what was released by the studios, what we've come to know as the package films. Right. But again, all of those music was at the center of telling the story. So, right. So they were like mini fantasias. So Chris can tell our, our listeners about those. Well, the, the original package films were actually, um, the result of a goodwill, um, ambassador tour that Walt Disney took to South America. And, um, the American, um, government sponsored these trips because they were concerned about South America, um, becoming, um, sympathetic with the access forces. And they wanted to keep them on the Allied side. So as a goodwill gesture, they sent Walt Disney to South America to create films. And these two films became the first two package films, which are shorter length subjects. You know, they're not a full length feature packaged together into one into one film, much like Fantasia was. But the difference is it was all with uh, modern contemporary music of that time of the forties. Um, the first two were Saludos Amigos and the three Caballeros, which were a result of those goodwill trips in South America. But then following those, they did make mind music fun and fancy free and melody time, um, which were um, especially make mind music and melody time are pretty much the exact same type of format as Fantasia, only it's all modern day music and some fantastic music, fantastic animation. Um, a lot of people overlook these films, but they were really innovative for their time. If you take them on a one by one basis, mm -hmm. um, a lot of fantastic experimental animation and, and a, a lot of great, um, um, combining of animation with music was going on in these cartoons. Well, in, was, in many cases, again, music was propelling the story. There, there was exactly. No, there was no dialogue. And it was also, the music was sung, as you were saying, by the contemporary artists of the time, like, um, right. you know, like the Andrews sisters. And Dinah some of, Shore and, yeah, yeah. Some of these were also, the art was done by Mary Blair. Right, who, yes. Sort of her her uh, art has had a renaissance, I would say, within the last about ten years. People have right. rediscovered her. There's another package film. I people don't associate with this, but it came at the very end of this era, 1949, and I, I associate it because again, music told a story, and that's the adventures mm -hmm. of Ichabod and Mister Toad. Right. Where especially the story of Ichabod Crane was all told through a song sung by Bing Crosby. Right, right, yeah, great music. He had the um the song "The Legend of the Headless Horseman" has sort of become a Halloween classic now, oh, especially in the fireworks show at the Magic Kingdom. Right, right. And so again, music continued to play a part in various Disney films, and there were innovations maybe how they were recorded, how tracks were you know placed on top of other tracks, things like that. Right. Right. But then we, we come upon maybe a place we've never really paid attention to the music. Uh, you know, nature documentaries are very common now. We see them on television. You know, Disney releases the, the nature films that are produced by Don Hahn every few years. Right. Right. But we go back to the true life adventures. Uh, people don't realize it was Walt Disney that, that invented the nature documentary. Absolutely. But, yes. And we, we all think of, you know, some of the, the, we have scenes that we've seen from these. Right. But what people would forget is how music was used in a different way to tell the story of the yes. nature documentary. Yes. He used music just like he had learned how to use music in his animated films. Only he married this music to live action footage, which was groundbreaking for its time. Um, a lot of people have criticized those nature films for being too cutesy, for 
trying to make a story out right. of something that isn't there's no story there they tried to make a plot that wasn't really there or they made you know little bugs dancing you know with right, each other because right, they right. you know just re-rolled the film and stuff exactly but i mean these films are enjoyable to this day and they really teach young people about the the importance of our natural world and music plays a pivotal role, whether subconscious or not, in these films. And it's very unique music. And I would say that this music was the beginning of what we know today. We don't really define it. I mean, the average person doesn't define it as such. But when they hear it, they automatically click on, that's Disney music. And I call it the Disney sound. Mm-hmm. And it's a very specific type of music it's very bright optimistic future forward looking um it takes classical themes and makes them somehow more modernized um very 1950s suburban um and this type of music kind of was getting its footing and then in the 1950s with the disneyland television series um, this music played a pivotal role because they used it as underscore to all the different documentary footage that they were showing on that television program. And there were composers um, that uh, the, the main composers of this music were George Bruins and Oliver Wallace and later Buddy Baker. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just a, instrumental themes that have a very distinctive sound. A good example of that would be the monorail song. Um, or the world of tomorrow theme. Um, if anybody has the collection of music from the, that they released a few years ago, I think it was a four CD set called Disneyland and Disneyland and the world's fair. They have a lot Mm -hmm. of instrumental music on those, um, on those CDs. That's all that Disneyland optimistic, bright, bouncy sound from that era. And when you, when you talk, when you, uh, describe the characteristics of the music. That's the characteristics of Walt Disney. Exactly. Yeah. Forward, yeah. forward-looking, optimistic, uh, bright. Uh, you know, positive. Uh, you know, he always felt that whatever was coming, you know, coming next was going to be better and for all of us. Right. And yet, right. And that's definitely the the Disney sound. And a, a lot of the people, you mentioned some people that contributed Disney sound. You mentioned, um, Oliver Wallace. And what people might not realize is he also did, uh, some of the music for some of our most beloved uh, films, like Lady and the Tramp. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. He was involved in the animated. I mean, he, he involved in scoring the animated features as well as the live action features. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, George Bruins um, adapted the um, Tchaikovsky Sleeping Beauty um, ballet and made it into the Sleeping Beauty soundtrack that we know today by adding lyrics to Once Upon a Dream, <laughs> which was an instrumental song originally. Mm-hmm. Um, and he and it and it's now become a Disney standard. Again, a, this is a song that was written a hundred years before it became a Disney standard, <laughs> but. Um, he adapted all that music into um, a modern day, something modern day audiences could more appreciate. He also uh, brought jazz into the Disney sort of sound in the 60s with like 101 Dalmatians. Yes. Uh, the Jungle Book. You know, we all love yes. those swinging alley cats. Yes. And, and even the Aristocats. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So, that, so that was very groundbreaking. Right, you know, right. That. So and then uh and then of course well you'd mentioned Buddy Baker, right? And 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 then the the two we all know, you know yes. the Sherman brothers. The Sherman brothers, yes, they became the first um, Disney um, contracted songwriters. Before that, Disney went you know branched out for his song. He would look to people on the staff already, like he had a nurse uh, named Hazel George mm-hmm. that wrote a lot of the lyrics to Disney songs, believe it or not. Um, she wrote the lyrics to the song Old Yeller, for example. 
Um, and she went under the pseudonym Gil George, but it was really his nurse, Hazel George. Mm-hmm. Um, but it wasn't until the early 1960s that he hired the Sherman brothers, um, as the very first staff songwriters. And the Sherman brothers were basically Walt Disney's voice set to music. They really understood his philosophies. They, they just, they got him. It was a, it was a match made in heaven. They were able to musically translate Walt Disney's ideas flawlessly. And his personality. Um, when we right. think of, you know, it's a great big beautiful tomorrow again. Right. They wrote that with Walt in mind. And right. That was right. him. Yeah, exactly. You know, when it was, I remember they, they told a story about that where they say man has a dream. Well, originally they were thinking in their heads, Walt has a dream and that's a start. Absolutely. And, yes. And so that, so that was the song they felt epitomized. You right. know, Walt Disney, they consider it his song. But of course there was a song that they wrote that was the Walt considered the best of all the songs. Yeah. That, that's Feed the Birds. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. considered Walt Disney's favorite song. And he would have the Sherman brothers come up to his office late on a Friday afternoon and play it. He just, he just say to them, why don't you play that song for me? Mm-hmm. And they would just play that song on his piano. And he just, he absolutely loved that song. That was right. his song. Yeah. What he felt, and he felt there was a much deeper meaning to that song, to those lyrics. He felt that's yeah. what life was about. Mm-hmm. About it, oh, doing simple things, you know, makes a difference in right. people's lives and in the world. I mean, there's much more to those lyrics than, than throwing a bunch of breadcrumbs of birds. Absolutely. And, and, and really and, think about it. And for it, Walt, that was what Mary Poppins was really about. It was that song. In college, I um, had a, an assignment in my English class. Everybody called me Disney in college because I was a, <laughs> a big Disney fan. And nobody really got got it. They didn't really understand where I was coming from. Um, but um, we had an English assignment where we had to find lyrics to a song and describe their meaning. And I picked that song, Feed the Birds, and everybody was like started to roll their eyes and think how corny that was for me to pick that song until I picked the song apart and and kind of gave an outline of, okay, this is what this song really means. And then everyone got it. And then I got an A on that assignment. So oh. <laughs> and that was the one that was the next step in your career. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, now we we then saw a renaissance of Disney animation and music in the 1980s. And, and the music sort of, it, it, it was, it was different starting with the Little Mermaid. And so how would you sort of classify, describe this music with the advent of sort of the new animation? Well, it's definitely a different sound than the, than the traditional, what I think of as the Disney sound. Um, it's a lot more inspired by Broadway. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I do, I do enjoy the Renaissance up to the modern day Disney music. Um, but on a different level, it's not what I think of as Walt's music. Um, I think of it as post Walt music, mm-hmm. <laughs> I guess you would say. But I mean, there's a lot to be said about it. There's a lot of beautiful music that was written during these, these past years. Um, and, uh, I, I don't, I, I would have to say I'm not as much of a connoisseur of it as I am of the classic Disney, mm-hmm. but I still do enjoy it and appreciate it for what it is. Are there any of the modern day composers that you believe maybe are as associated with this new sound of Disney, the way like um, Oliver Wallace was of the Sherman Brothers? Well, Howard Ashman and Alan Menken, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd say, um, I'm drawing a blank. Um, who's, who did You Got a Friend in Me? Um, oh, Phil, no, is it Phil Collins? Randy Newman. Randy, Randy Newman, thank right. you, thank you. It's, it's I, one hope, of I hope you can people. edit that part. <laughs> no way, come on. <laughs> no, no, that, that's, that's the joy of live recording. <laughs> Randy Newman, of course, mm-hmm. um, did a lot of great. In fact, I would have to say Randy Newman's probably one of my favorite. Um, modern day Disney composers because I love the soundtrack to um, 
Princess and the Frog. I'd say that's my favorite um, contemporary soundtrack. That's that's mine, too. I mean, that's my favorite of the contemporary animated films. Yeah, me too. Excellent. Now, for a lot of us, uh, you know, people enjoy the, the soundtrack music, but Disneyland, July 17th, 1955, opens. And, and at that time, you know, most amusement parks had live music, you know, carousels, calliopes, bands, live narration. But yeah. Disneyland was groundbreaking even here because it was the first theme park to introduce pre-recorded music. And they, and they did it gradually, didn't they? Yes. On opening day, there were a few, um, very short loops in specific locations which were meant to kind of give you a psychological, like you're leaving one land and entering another land. For example, as you entered Sleeping Beauty's castle, you would hear When You Wish Upon a Star with Cliff Edwards, and it would be like on a continual two-minute loop over and over and over again all day long. As you entered Adventureland, you would hear a loop of jungle drums and animals you know, elephants and tigers and monkeys. As you entered Frontierland, you would hear like a banjo pioneer instrumental. So these were very short loops and they lasted like two minutes and they were just on a continual loop and they played all day long. But nothing like that had really ever been done in an amusement park before. So Walt was thinking early on how music can help to set the mood and, you know, you're leaving Main Street and you're entering another world and the music was used to transport you into those other worlds. Mm-hmm. And, and and I think this is where people, the Disney music has really touched people, you know, is the theme park. So they associate it with a birthday, with a visit, with a, a loved one. A, right. You know, um, they're bringing their, their first child to the park. Um, but really we didn't get we didn't see attraction pre-recorded music until what you mentioned just earlier the 1964-65 world's fair well some of the there were a few attractions that had music in them but again there were there were not that many of them and they were basically just playing the same song over and over and over again on a loop for example as you went through the original 1955 version of peter pan's flight you would hear the soundtrack version of you can fly you can fly over and over and over again as you pass by all the different scenes um you would hear um the Dig, dig, dig song from the Seven Dwarfs as you pass through Snow White's Scary Adventures. Um, and you would hear an instrumental version of the Merrily song from Mr. Toad as you went through the Mr. Toad's Wild Ride. So there was music, but it wasn't really time to match the scenery. It was just overall music that you would hear throughout the entire attraction. So, um, so. How did the attractions like It's a Small World, Great Moments with Mr. Lincoln and Carousel of Progress sort of revolutionize theme park music? Well, because they started to think of the attractions more on the level of being a a show that has scenes that it's not just like, for example, the Carousel of Progress had a it was like a stage show. So you had music that went along with the show and brought you from scene to scene to scene to scene. And that had never really been done before. The original idea for It's a Small World was to have the children all singing their national anthems. And um, they did a test on that, and it sounded like, a horror show. (laughs) (laughs) So Walt Disney just enlisted the Sherman brothers to come up with a song that could be sung in all different languages and all different uh, musical styles to, to mirror different musical styles around the world, like a, you know, an Asian version, a uh, French cabaret version, you know, yada, yada, yada. So that's where it's a small world came from. Um, Great Moments with Mr. Lincoln is a musical show. People don't think of it as that, but there's music throughout the entire program and it paid a, it 
plays a very important part to setting the tone and, and the, the, um, dr- drama of that presentation. So it was really the, the New York World's Fair that really, um, made music such an important part of all future Disney attractions. That's where they really started thinking about it in those terms. Now, when was background music to the different realms added? Because for, for a lot of people, that, that experience of hearing the background music in their favorite realm, like for me, what, Main Street USA has my favorite background music. And when I walk into the park that first time and I hear something from, uh, you know, the, the matchmaker or, 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 you know, summer magic playing, it just puts me, it makes, it lifts my spirits and puts right. me right in the mood. It transports me to, to the world that Walt created. So when was background music start, uh, introduced into the park? Well, like you said before, originally all the music was live, um, uh, in the parks and, and they had on Main Street, they had a music store, right? Um, it was called the Wurlitzer Music Store and they would be paying, playing live piano music or player piano music, um, all day long. So you would hear that on Main Street. They would have the Disneyland band. They would have barbershop quartets. They would have, uh, the Dixieland bands. There was a lot of live music going on in the park. So even before they had recorded um, background music, Disneyland was still filled with music, even in those early days. Um, it was just, it, it was live was the only difference. But um, it probably around the time the um, uh, World's Fair ended and Walt was bringing these attractions back from the World's Fair, he started adding um score music to the attractions and not just the interior of the attractions but the exterior of the attractions and one of the earliest examples of that is as you were waiting in the queue area for it's a small world which was an outdoor queue you would hear a eight minute um medley of music from it's a small world while waiting for the attraction. And then um, another early example is the overture to Pirates of the Caribbean. As you were standing in line to get into Pirates of the Caribbean, you would hear the overture music in the queue. And eventually, that led to having more music outside of the attractions. And by the, by the mid to mid-late, like 68, 69, they started playing music um, on Main Street, recorded, pre-recorded music on Main Street. But the problem was the music they picked was like easy listening music from the 60s. It <laughs> wasn't the really. the 1860s, right? No, not the 1860s. <laughs> like the, like Hello Mrs. Robinson and, um, MacArthur Park were playing. Wow. On... <laughs> that, that gives it a whole different feel. <laughs> so, um, they had hired a gentleman named, um, Jack Wagner to be the voice of Disneyland to do all the um, announce announcing for the park and he was walking through the park one day and he heard um, this inappropriate music and he volunteered to come up with a more appropriate period piece of music for Main Street. And so he assembled a bunch of different pieces of music and he had access because he had been involved in radio and he knew how to get the rights to different things and, and how to, you know, get, um, you know, music that is in the public domain and all those types of things that the average person of that time wouldn't know. I mean, there was no Internet back then that you could just search for music. Um, he had to find record albums and go to libraries and, you know, do, do a lot of legwork. So he ended up assembling the first, um, Main Street loop, which I believe was, um, 1970 was the first authentic Main Street loop. And from there, it just led to having loops for every single land. He, there, he did one for Frontierland. He did one for, um, the main entrance to the park. And when Walt Disney World opened, he was put in charge of creating appropriate music for the whole park. The whole thing was based on 
um, background music. Every single area in Walt Disney World in 1971 had its own specific background music. And he was, he was the head guy in charge of all of that. So in addition to being the voice of Disneyland, he was the music of Disneyland. And he also, okay, we, we've been doing a 60 years of Disneyland series for the anniversary. And we were in the 1970s and we've talked about two revolutionary parades, the Main Street Electrical Parade and America on Parade. And Jack even chose the music for those. Yes, he did. Well, the original parades, again, were all live music. You would have a marching band going down the street. You'd have the Firehouse Five going down the street. You know, you'd have all the different bands that play in the park providing the music for the parades. Um, and it wasn't until the Main Street Electrical Parade that they started to have the music um, be pre-recorded and it was... Um, done through radio frequencies. So as different floats pass different areas, it would trigger a radio frequency to set off the appropriate music that matched the um, float that was passing by. So this was a new technology that was developed for the Main Street Electrical Parade. And this was carried over, of course, for the America on Parade. And it's something that they still use in the parks to this day. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Paint the Night, you know, continues to sort of revolutionize the music. Right, exactly. Now, I'm curious, you mentioned, you know, when you were doing research and, you know, earlier that, you know, there were no, uh, you know, there were no recordings of the theme park music. Uh, when did they start releasing, you know, the theme park music on albums? I know I have still my little picture discs of the Main Street Electrical Parade and It's a Small World. But I, I can't remember when did I start collecting, you know, the theme park music. Well, actually, the thing is that since I grew up in the 70s, a lot of the early albums that had theme park music had gone out of print by the time I started collecting the music. But there were earlier um, Disneyland records. In fact, the first one um, was um, a record of the player piano that played at the Wurlitzer uh, Music Store on Main Street. They actually recorded music live from that very player piano, and they actually released two albums um, called You Too Can Be the Life of the Party. <laughs> <laughs> By playing your organ. <laughs> and it was all, you know, old-fashioned player piano music, like how you're going to get them down on the farm and all that kind of fun, old-timey music. Um, then they also released a, in 1956, they released an album of the Disneyland band recorded live in the park. Mm -hmm. Um, and then throughout the fifties, they recorded an album of the Golden Horseshoe, a live recording of that. Um, they had a date night at Disneyland album, which was <laughs> right. And yeah. they also had an album called Echoes of Disneyland, mm -hmm. which was organ music also recorded at the Wurlitzer Music Store. I have that one, too. <laughs> and they had another one called Meet Me Down on Main Street, yeah. which was the uh, Mellow Man Quartet. It was a barbershop quartet recorded at Disneyland. So there was a lot of live music recorded and produced on record albums in the early years. Um, and then there was kind of like a throughout the 60s, kind of like a, a low period for Disneyland music being released, on vinyl at least. Um, the Enchanted Tiki Room opened, of course, in 1963, but it wasn't until 1968 that they released the soundtrack on vinyl. Um, and um, after that, they started to, like when the Country Bear Jamboree came out, that was released on vinyl. Um, when America Sings came out, they had an America Sings album on vinyl. I have the Mickey um, Mouse Review on vinyl. Yeah, the Mickey Mouse um, Review was actually not in Disney World. Yeah. yeah, it was a Disney World attraction, but the the mute the audio on that album was not the authentic audio from the attraction. I think it one was, whole side is just nothing but cuts from the different films. One whole side is cuts from the from from different albums and, and original soundtracks 
And it's all songs that were in the Mickey Mouse review, but not the original soundtrack of the Mickey mm-hmm. Mouse review. So that one never really got a official album release because it was kind of like not the real music you would hear if you were in the park. Um, in 1980, they released the very first um, official album of Disneyland and Walt Disney World. And um, it included, you know, little cuts of all the different attractions. But these were just little, little teasers. They were like two minutes of the Haunted Mansion, one minute of Pirates of the Caribbean. I wanted the whole thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it wasn't enough. Yeah. So and now they are releasing that, of course. And they're. Yeah. And 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 some of the early albums you mentioned and others, they they they've been re-releasing those on CD and digitally, yeah. so you can you can you can find most of those on Amazon or mm-hmm. iTunes, yeah. So, what would you say in general? What is the purpose of theme park music? If you had to define it, give it a goal, what's its mission statement? <laughs> I think um, it's definitely something that needs. Its main purpose is to set a mood and put you in a different time and place. Um, you don't want music that's distracting. You don't want Hello, Mrs. Robinson playing on Main Street, like I said earlier. You want music that people associate with that era. And basically, you want music that's cliche because you want music that automatically triggers your mind into thinking, oh, that's the gay 90s, or oh, that's the Old West, or oh, that's a fantasy world. You want, you don't want music that distracts from that. So you want very, you know, music that automatically puts you into that mood. You don't want any, like, experimental (laughs) music that doesn't really, it needs to complement the environment. And, um, sort of like in a film, in a, just like in a film soundtrack, it needs to complement the action and not distract from it. It needs to add to the experience. Right. I mean, there are many times where, you know, they'll release a soundtrack to a film and I'll be surprised that there was music. <laughs> right. You know, again, you're right. It's, it's, it can be subconscious if it's done well. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Now, now this might be a different question for you given your 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 breadth of knowledge but do you have a particular disney song or audio that is your favorite well hmm i would i would have to say um as far as the parks i really love the soundtrack to america sings mm-hmm. um i grew up going on that attraction and i was heartbroken when they closed it and so it really gives me the warm fuzzies to, to go back and be able to listen to that soundtrack. Although you can visit the performers over at Splash Mountain. <laughs> yeah, but it's not the same. But I, I really enjoy that soundtrack. And as far as the films, I'd have to say Mary Poppins is my favorite soundtrack. I, um, I love the Sherman Brothers music. I love the, 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 Composer for that is uh, Erwin Kostel, who mm-hmm. was uh, involved in a lot of Disney projects. But his first um, project for Disney was to score Mary Poppins. He also worked on Bedknobs and Broomsticks and Pete's Dragon and Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, which is not Disney, but kind of in the same family. Oh, Sherman Brothers, yeah. Yeah, Sherman Brothers. Songs, yeah. So, yeah, I, I love his orchestrations. It's just so rich and deep and definitely has that Disney feel to it. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, for me, it's tough. It, it sort of depends. I like all of the soundtracks. It just it depends what I'm doing, what my mood is. Um you know, but I th- I think in terms of music life, I really need to pick me up. It was the main. It's the Main Street Electrical Parade. Yeah, or that's another paint, good one. Paint the night. Yeah, I really enjoy. So, um, just mainly because of the tempo. Yeah, Main Street Electrical Parade is definitely up there for me too. Mm-hmm. But and then the, the soundtrack to of, of all things Enchanted, and and of uh, and uh, Princess and the Frog. So, right. And also, yeah. I can't forget to, oh, I have to mention the Enchanted Tiki Room. Mm-hmm. That's another favorite. Mm-hmm. And the Haunted Mansion. I love the music from the Haunted Mansion. 
And a lot of people, oh, that's music? Yeah, it's filled it with great music. Oh, yeah. Yes, yes. In some places. Yeah. Now, now I, I know when we were talking, you told me you were a cast member at both Magic Kingdoms, ours out here at Disneyland and back at, at Disney World. Can you talk a little about what you did? Yeah, well, when I was 16, I got my very first job ever anywhere, not just Disneyland, but it was as a dishwasher at the Plaza Inn restaurant on Main Street. Um, it was also the kitchen was in the middle of the Plaza Inn and on the backside facing backstage was a employee, a cast member cafeteria called the in between. Mm -hmm. So I did the dishes for both uh, the Plaza Inn and the in between. Um, very brack backbreaking work. <laughs> oh, you didn't have Dumbo there like squirting him down with his trunk and not exactly. Oh, no, okay. Well no. that just burst the magic for me. But but to <laughs> add to the magic, they didn't call my job title was not dishwasher. My official job title was steward. <laughs> oh, there you go. I can't beat you. They always like to give it a little bit more of a you know, a little more clout. They don't like to use words like dishwasher or trash picker upper they they like to give them a little more at disney they like to make it a little bit more have a little more gravitas than it really does mm -hmm. but yeah that was a tough job i i did that when i was 16 summer of 1990 during the 35th anniversary celebration i remember that i probably ate off one of the dishes <laughs> <laughs> And um, I remember one thing that was funny is when we when we took I would take my break in the in between also when, you know, that's where I would have my lunch, too. And all of the the cast members, all the cast from the Mardi Gras, the Party Gras parade would be eating lunch in full costume in, in the in between. So you'd see all these women with bananas in their hair and and men with like no shirts on and like, you know, ruffled ruffled sleeves and it was crazy <laughs> it was quite the experience and, and, and what about at walt disney world well when i was um, in college i did the walt disney world college internship program i went there two. i did two semesters the first semester first semester i was a custodian on main street in the magic kingdom and then i went back the following summer summer of 96 and I finally bumped up to something that I enjoyed, <laughs> and I was a um, attractions host. And this time I worked at the then Disney MGM Studios, now known as the Disney's Hollywood Studios. Now known um, as the biggest construction site over there. <laughs> yeah, in the world, yeah. After Shanghai, the biggest construction mm -hmm. site in the world. Um, yeah, so anyway, I was a, um astro attendant on Star Tours. Oh, what fun. Yeah, so that was a great experience, and I enjoyed that. Now, I had mentioned that I first stumbled upon you when I was actually searching for Disney music, and I came across Disneyland, a magical audio tour at DisneyChris.com. Can you tell our listeners a bit about that project? Well, it is an ongoing project, <laughs> and it started out... Um, I started making CDs for my friends and family for Christmas gifts back maybe 10 years ago. And, um, you know, my family loves me and they, you know, they support what I do, but they're not Disney fans. And I wanted to find a way to share this music with people that appreciate it as much as I do. So... The first thing I did was I created a collection of 25 CDs and I posted them online so you could download them. And uh, that was probably 2008, 2009. And then it kind of evolved into I created a little radio station where I would have like all of my music on a constant rotation and you would be able to listen to the music on my radio station. But the problem with that was it kept it kept um, crashing my computer. Oh. <laughs> it took up way too much memory to, mm -hmm. to keep that running. So then I decided to create my own website. And um, it started out with about 300 songs. 
And that was in 2011 that I started it. And as of now, I have 1,100 songs. This part is of okay. the Disneyland, the Disneyland Magical Audio Tour, which is all music from Disneyland Park past to present from 1955 up to, you know, 2016. And I have it divided into to 25 chapters. Each chapter covers a different theme. Like one chapter is Welcome to Disneyland. It's all about the main entrance to the park. Then I have a Main Street USA chapter, an Adventureland chapter, a New Orleans Square chapter. I also have like a Disneyland After Dark section, holiday time at Disneyland. Um, I have an entire chapter dedicated to what we were talking about earlier, the record albums that have to do with the Disney parks. I have a whole chapter of that. Um, it's just kind of evolved and I still have hundreds, if not thousands of songs to add to it. Well, hurry and, <laughs> Well, I don't, I don't just post, I don't just post the audio. I actually edit it. I clean it. I take out, you know, if there's a lot of background hiss, because I get a lot of really old recordings. A lot of them are recorded on cassette or reel-to-reels. You know, remember reel-to-reels? Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. So the sound quality, there's a lot of background hiss. So I invested in like a really, you know, top-notch program that'll take out all that hiss and everything. So I spent a lot of time perfecting the sound quality. I also make special mixes like ride through reenactments. Like I have a track that sounds like you're traveling on the Grand Circle Tour on the Disneyland Railroad. Or I have several different tracks that are um, the Mark Twain Steamboat, different narrations through the years. Like I have a 1969 version, a 1978 version, a 1985 version, you know, different narration. But you also hear like the sound of the birds, the sound of the water, the sound of the burning cabin on the shoreline. So it sounds like if you close your eyes, it's it's like you're really there. And I put all those mixes together. I do all that myself. Yeah, so well, I really encourage our listeners to, if you love Disneyland theme park music, the, the television specials uh, over the years, anniversary yeah. specials, things like that, definitely check out DisneyChris.com. We will have a link in our show notes um, for yeah. that as well. And, okay, you have a global audience now. We have Dizzers all around the world. Is there an elusive audio, a holy grail you've been searching for? Because you never know what people might have under their beds. So, so you want to put a call out <laughs> for a particular audio right now? Well, I do have a wish list of about a hundred things that I'm looking for. We're not going to go through those right no, now. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> but if you really want to go to my website and check out my wish list, please do. But off the top of my head, um, I would love to have um, the Circus Fantasy Parade from the 1980s. That's one thing I don't have. Um, gosh, I can't. You put me on the spot. I can't think. That's That's a big one. Well, I was um, let's check out your website. You yeah, see, never know what you might have on, you know, in in, in that old, um, you know, camera. Yeah, <laughs> and also, also, you know, I might already have something, but the sound quality isn't as good as I would like it to be. So I'm always looking for a better version of what I already have. Now, now tell us just a little bit about your podcast. You're on Mouse Spits, and you host Jiminy Cricket. So. What would what will our folks find on those? Well, um, I'm on a podcast called Mouse Music, which is um, part of a um, network of podcasts called Sideshow Sound Theater. Um, and the, the Mouse Music podcast is dedicated to Disney music specifically. Um, and I do a segment called the Disney Music Archives, and I bring on a rare piece of Disney audio and I discuss its history. Um, it's, it's one segment out of a, you know, it's an hour and a half show and it's, it's produced every other month, basically. Um, and, uh, but my main podcast is something I just started in late, just late 2015. 
I've only done uh, 18 episodes so far, but it's a weekly podcast called Jiminy Crickets. And on there, I just basically talk about everything to do with Disney, the history. We do trivia. We do talk about theme parks. We talk about movies. We talk about news. Just It's just a basic, fun Disney podcast. Excellent. Well, we will have links to all those uh, uh, sites in our show notes. Well, Chris, I, th- I think now you, the next thing is you need to write a book, a definitive <laughs> book on Disney music. It's the only thing that's missing out of your, your uh, curriculum vitae here. Yeah. And now, if our listeners want to know more about music or they have something that they think you might want, uh, how can they get in touch with you? Well, um, I'm on Twitter at DisneyChris73. Um, on Facebook, I'm under the, you can find me under DisneyChris.com. That's spelled out, DisneyChris, D-O-T-C-O-M. Um, or you can look for me under my name on Facebook, which is Chris Linden. That's L-Y-N-D-O-N. Um, or you can email me at uh, dclinden at gmail.com. Excellent. And again, um, Tom is going to put all of these links in so our show notes so you can get back to those. I know. <laughs> but he's, he's our master. And, um, well, Chris, I want to thank you for joining us on the Dis Unplugged podcast, Disneyland edition. And for sharing Walt Disney's legacy of music with those of us who grew up with Walt and with fans just learning about Walt. Oh, it was a pleasure. I really enjoyed talking about one of my favorite subjects. Excellent. And and now I'm I'm sure later on I'm going to be back on your site listening to some music. <laughs> Great. <laughs> and um, and to to all of our listeners, thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by a man, Walt Disney. Very cool. We'll leave it at that. Thanks for listening, everyone. Mm-hmm.